So on the 5th of March in 2020, I stood on a stage to accept something that is called the Thrive Award. It's an illustrious award uh, given to me for having directed, and I quote, the most inspiring and life-affirming film at CineQuest in Silicon Valley. And I'm not telling you this to brag, I'm telling you this to tell you that this was supposed to be a memorable moment, the night of the North American premiere of a film that had taken me almost three years to make. And it was born from the hard-earned life savings of me and my husband. It was also supposed to be the launch of more than 150 other screenings elsewhere, including two other screenings in Europe. But I think you guys all know how this story goes. (laughs) There was what was supposed to happen and there was what actually happened. The film's US debut was the harbinger of a global nightmare. The next morning after the film had screened, the festival was shut down and I flew home just before Australia's international borders would be closed indefinitely. Bye-bye hopes and dreams and plans for the future. And hello, COVID-19. But just as any story told by a good filmmaker should this one does have a happy ending and that has a lot to do with the film's subject matter which as you all know is all about mindfulness meditation because you see making this feature film involved my participation in an absurdly comprehensive and harebrained world first experiment which became known as my year of living mindfully. And at this point, you might be thinking that this talk is going to be all about convincing you, just like I did, to commit to meditating every day for a year. And I find that most people are in one of three categories. One, you are already a meditator and you're excited that I'm about to confirm everything that you already know to be true. Two, you're wondering if you should commit to a regular meditation practice and if all your problems might disappear, if you do. And three, you have absolutely no interest in mindfulness. You can't remember how come you found yourself in this group and you don't have time to scratch your nose, let alone let alone find any time for yourself to sit down and meditate. I'm afraid to say that all, if you're in any of those three categories, you are all quite possibly wrong because the intention of this talk is not to convince you to do anything. In fact, uh, I would like to achieve three things. I will leave you, I will reveal some surprising truths about mindfulness meditation, and it may be controversial for some meditation devotees. I will confess that all my problems did not go away when I started meditating. And I will tell you why I'm now personally convinced that taking time out for my mental well-being is just as important as getting enough sleep, eating fresh fruit and vegetables, and exercising regularly. But first, some background. 
I would really like to tell you that my whole epic experiment started because I decided to tackle a really big problem, which is namely the global mental health crisis. But although that would have definitely been a worthy motive for any unshrinking health journalist like myself, after, you know, you may be aware that the leading medical science journal, The Lancet, has declared that every country in the world is facing to tackle a host of mental health problems. And that was before COVID-19 that this was published. But the truth is that for me, the inspiration for this whole endeavour, as Claire has already mentioned, was very personal. For me, like for so many others, the wounds of mental illness run very deep. I've witnessed the devastating effects uh, uh, of mental illness on the people that I love. Um, I've seen what severe depression, addiction and bipolar disorder looks like. Um, and suicide. When I was 24, during an especially lonely time, I was diagnosed with an incurable autoimmune disease, uh, which is called Shrogan syndrome. And then 13 years later, at the time that my mindfulness experiment began, my insomnia was most troubling. One or two nights a week, I would travel right through the night, completely unable to sleep, plagued with rumination and that was before the pandemic I definitely wanted to investigate solutions to help others but I really also wanted to find answers for myself and it wasn't just my future that I was thinking about I wanted to be able to teach my kids how to prepare themselves for the world that they will inherit as they faced a future of increasing uncertainty, how could they learn to nurture and nourish and protect their minds? Now, although there are lifestyle recommendations in diet and sleep and exercise for good health, I was actually doing all of those things, following the guidelines as a very conscientious health journalist. And I was surprised that when I looked for something more concrete, a kind of mental fitness training like the brain's equivalent of a 30-minute workout or the mind's daily serving of five fresh fruit and vegetables there was nothing and because of my work as a health journalist I knew that any realistic solution would need to meet some key requirements it needed to be free or at least very affordable it needed to be available to anyone regardless of their education or their life circumstances it needed to flexibly fit into people's schedules and most importantly for me, it needed to be based on scientific evidence, which was a lot to ask in my search for the equivalent of a healthy eating plan for my mind. But there was one thing that seemed to fit the bill, which this group will already be well and truly on top of, and that is mindfulness meditation. And many of you will already be familiar with the meta-analysis that was published in the medical journal, journal JAMA Psychiatry which was done by Professor Willem Kuyken and his colleagues, and that concluded that an eight-week program called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, MBCT, that's, um, for those of you um, who aren't teachers, that's delivered by qualified instructors in a really rigorous group setting. And what Willem's meta-analysis concluded is that MBCT 
can be equal to drugs for preventing recurrent depression. And there were similar programs that were showing a great deal of promise for the treatment of things like chronic pain, stress, anxiety, and addiction. And these were in randomized controlled trials. So given the mental health crisis, and that as the Lancet said, that we were failing and we were facing and failing to tackle this crisis, I wondered if all of this evidence that I was looking at was too good to be true. And then on a personal level, I wondered what would happen if I really committed to meditating every day for a year. My first problem is that I really didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Meditation is one of the fastest growing health trends and a more than $1 billion industry with 100,000 products capitalizing on the word mindfulness for sale on Amazon, including my two favorites, the Mindful Pets tear stain remover combs for dogs and the Mindful with two L's Mindful Products Space-Saving Wine Bottle Rack. <laughs> With all of this, it was really hard to know where to start and who to trust. And on top of that, there was also research being published showing that meditation doesn't always work, that it can be dangerous. And with papers warning that misinformation and poor research methods could lead us to led to us being harmed, misled and disappointed. How was I, as a questioning, curious journalist, to know if I was doing the right kind of mindfulness training? And what is mindfulness anyway? I did know enough to know that it was essentially a three and a half thousand year old technique to teach me how my mind works. But I suspected that if Siddhartha Gautama, aka the Buddha, um, who, if you know, he, he was really essentially what I consider to be the world's um, first best-selling psychologist. But I said I, I suspected that he probably wouldn't recognize his systematic method for relieving suffering uh, in a jar of uh, mindful mayonnaise. <laughs> but as someone who values evidence. I decided that I would recruit six Australian researchers as well as my doctor in order to track my stress hormones, immune system, gene expression, cellular aging, uh, subjective well-being uh, and uh, brain changes and function. I guess what I really wanted to know once and for all is was mindfulness worth putting on my daily to-do list. So I set up uh, interviews with 18 world-leading mindfulness scientists and, of course, on, top of, on the top of my list was John Kabat-Zinn, a name many of you will know. Um, but for those who don't, uh, he's a former molecular biologist turned meditation teacher and really a key figure in popularising mindfulness in the West. In 1979, John developed an eight-week program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR, um, which you, I'm sure you're all familiar with. Um, but just to remind you that the whole idea of MBSR was to offer hope to 
chronically ill people for whom conventional medicine had done all it could. And today, obviously, um, the program is offered around the world in schools, universities and hospitals. And so John's definition of mindfulness was really important to understand because it's really the most widely used in mindfulness teaching in scientific circles. Uh, but I was surprised because John explained that defining mindfulness is a bit like defining really complex ideas such as intelligence and wisdom. Um, but I'll just um, play a little video of John talking about his definition. So my working definition of mindfulness, this is what I call an operational definition, is that it's the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And the non-judgmental part is the kicker, so to speak. And people need to understand that non-judgmentally doesn't mean that you won't have any judgments. It, will, it means that you will be mindful of how many judgments you have. Uh, how attached we all are to wanting things to be this way and not wanting them to be that way. Uh, you know, so, you know, just uh, having things be different um, and then not judge the judging. So this is kind of it's an operational definition because when you put it into operation, then mindfulness arises within you. And you don't need to understand it. And the definition is just a finger pointing at the moment, the proverbial, you know, don't look at the finger, look where the finger is pointing. And so when you listen in that kind of a deep way to your own experience, you uncover or recover or discover uh, new dimensions of your own life and uh, learn how to inhabit them including awareness of you, you uncover or recover or discover new dimensions of your own life and learn how to inhabit them effortlessly in ways that uh, are healing and transformative and that catalyze learning and growing across the lifespan. I'm sure that some of you will totally get what he just said and some of you will be totally confused <laughs> and if so don't worry because I was very much in the confusion camp and it took me a full year to really get what he was trying to say. I guess the way I've come to think of it is that mindfulness is a verb. It is not a noun. It is an activity not a destination. And perhaps it's not even an awareness practice, but rather the practice of awareing. And I do like Dan Harris's uh, way of explaining this. He um, was a presenter of Good Morning America who turned to mindfulness after having a breakdown in front of 5 million people on live TV. And for him, mindfulness is like sitting behind a flowing waterfall aware of the gushing water that are his thoughts and experiences, but he's not in the water. He is outside the water. 
So as to how all of this played out in my own experiment over the year, there is a really big difference between understanding mindfulness in theory and actually putting it into practice. You've probably heard the saying that practicing mindfulness meditation is like trying to tame the monkey mind. But for me, and I suspect many of you, it is more like trying to wrestle with a bull elephant. (laughs) Uh, As instructed, I would direct my awareness to a point of focus, be it my breath or my body or whatever else, and pretty much instantly I would find that my mind is elsewhere, thinking, planning, remembering, anything but where I was intending my mind to be. But what really helped me with this was doing a little bit of digging into the current neuroscientific thinking about how my mind works. This is Associate Professor Amishi Jha, who some of you know, who is the director of the Jha Lab at the University of Miami. So for example, a simple exercise like mindfulness of breathing, the key aspects of that are to notice what's happening in the body, right? Tied to breathing, select some aspect of a sensation. And then when the mind wanders to return it back. So the key words that I take away are notice, select, control mind wandering, or notice mind wandering. And it ends up that that fits very nicely with very well-established brain networks. We know that the saliency in network in the brain is all about noticing, where the central executive network is all about selecting, and the default mode network is tied to mind-wandering. So now we have a map to see what the correspondence might be between training of a particular type and brain networks that are activated or changed. And this is where the beginning stages of research is going. We're starting to see that critical nodes within those three networks are changing. Their functional profile is changing, and in some cases with long-term practitioners, their structural profile is changing. At this point, I really want to emphasize that there is currently not yet specific neural signatures for what happens during mindfulness training. But Amishi and her colleagues are learning that there are at least three major brain networks involved in mindfulness training. And one in particular, the default mode network, DMN really interests me. This is a network that lights up in brain scanners when we're told not to do anything in particular. I think of my DMN as an automatic mental program that runs when there's nothing more important going on. And it's designed to force me to think about my place within the world. And it makes perfect sense from a a survival of the species evolutionary perspective. Researchers believe that being pre-programmed to spend our downtime processing and reprocessing social information is Mother Nature's way of ensuring that we work well with others for the good of the tribe. Now, there is absolutely no problem with having a robust default mode network. After all, it's really helpful to remember 
who I am each morning and that I have committed to doing a presentation um, for you folks this morning. Uh, and I know that I have some of my best ideas, for example, when I'm in the shower taking mental time out. But there can also be huge downsides to having an inner social network. Just like Mark Zuckerberg's social media network, it is notorious for hijacking my inner thoughts, for taking me off task and for making me feel like crap. Mother Nature didn't intend for my default self system to make me happy all the time. She designed it to automatically force me to mull over my life. So whenever I replay conversations in my head, when I rewrite my verbal blunders, when I catapult myself into a horrible hypothetical future or subject myself to an inner moral performance review, that is all my default mode network coming online. And the problem is the extent to which I get caught up in the drama of my life and take it all personally. So the default mode network is linked to everything from excessive worry and rumination through to loneliness, which unsurprisingly is also linked to a range of mental illness. Uh, but from what we know so far, it seems like the Goldilocks principle might apply. Not too little, not too much, just right. And it's fascinating to me that remarkably quiet default mode networks have been recorded in the brains of long-term meditators, both when they are and are not practising. Um, in fact, Amishi Jha's pet theory is that mindfulness training, which involves noticing when my default mode network has taken over and then returning back to focus, is like doing mental push-ups. So it gives me more ability to toggle between different brain networks. And I find it really interesting that she's now researching if doing these mindful mental push-ups could actually help boost resilience and prevent trauma-related mental illness for people in high-performance jobs, such as doctors and nurses and firefighters and police officers. So I initially started doing my mental push-ups by meditating for 20 minutes a day, trying a variety of different apps. And then over the course of the year, uh, I built up to, to, to 45 minutes a day um, and then participated in various retreats. Uh, and I did try a variety of different um, mindfulness apps to sort of help <laughs> But I have to confess that in a world with beautiful Bridgertons and heroic Highlanders to watch on Netflix during my very rare moments of downtime as a full-time working mother of two children, uh, <laughs> if not for the army of scientists who were tracking my every move, I most certainly would not have stuck with this daily practice. 
And this is where a number of behaviour change strategies came into play. And I thought it might be helpful um, to those here today who haven't started um, daily mindfulness practice um, to share with you my personal favourite strategy. Professor Peter Golwitzer from New York University has developed a technique called if-then planning to help us overcome the gap between what we intend to do and what we actually do. It's the intention behaviour gap. And the idea is to automate our healthy behaviours and it involves specifying the in action I intend to take, when and where I will undertake it, and what I will do when I inevitably slip up. So over time, my if-then planning has evolved, um, depending on the age of my children and whether or not they're having naps during the day. But at the moment, this is what it looks like. If it is 6am, then I will sit up and meditate in my bed for 45 minutes. If I need to sleep in a bit longer or the kids wake up early, then I will meditate at work on my lunch break. If it's the weekend, then I will meditate after we get home from watching the kids play sport. If my day has been too busy and I still haven't meditated, then I will meditate in my bed before I go to sleep. And I'm finding at the moment that um, I am probably meditating four mornings a week and three mornings a week uh, and, and uh, one, you know, one or two days a week I'm meditating in the middle of the day and then, you know, uh, uh, sometimes I go right through to the end of the day before I've even had a moment to um, practice. But the thing is, is that I know for sure that if I had attempted to meditate at the exact same time of the day at the outset of my experiment, I would have failed. And I think this is a really important point for people who are interested in um, sparking and, and inspiring other people to, to develop a regular practice because the behaviour change component of this is crucial. There's absolutely no way that people are going to experience the transformative benefit of mindfulness practice if they don't actually practice. But it is using techniques like this and some others, um, which I can share um, later if you're interested, that I attribute to the fact that I was able to meditate every day for a year. So I went on to do an MBSR course, which prepared me for the meditation equivalent of a marathon, a 10-day silent retreat. And by day 219 of my experiment, I was experiencing periods of deep absorption the habitual me, myself and mine narrative fell away and all that made way for windows of equanimity, abiding in a peace and a sense of connectedness. I won't be ruining the film's ending for those who haven't yet seen it by revealing that my well-being scores went from being slightly below average at the start to being way off the chart. But I say windows of equanimity because I don't want to give the impression that I walk around in a bliss bubble. <laughs> and the surprising truth is that I don't think that meditation has made me any happier. I know that might be controversial and confusing for anyone who's read any title of any best-selling meditation book, but rather than making me happier, I think that meditation teaches me the how of being unhappy. 
or dissatisfied. I'm learning to, to, to turn towards my painful thoughts and feelings and to know that the bad times are just as much part of this thing we call life as the good times. In the profound words of many mindfulness meditation teachers, life sucks, everything changes, don't take it personally. And the word I've developed to describe this is being discomfortable. Comfortable in the inevitable discomfort that makes me human. Although the experts call the same thing decentering, which is a science speak for being aware of our incoming thoughts, feelings, and experiences and accepting them, but not attaching or reacting to them. So now that I view mindfulness in this way, it finally makes sense to me why with the help of good mindfulness teachers, depressed people can recognize that their despondency is something separate from themselves. People with addictions can develop distance between craving and behavior. And chronic pain sufferers like me can disconnect from their pain and all of its emotional overlay. This practice of mindful awareness also means that in the same way that school children can be taught not to believe everything they first hear, they can also learn not to believe everything they first think and feel. And our workplaces too can be transformed by people who are cultivating an ability to respond and not react. I really want to be clear that I'm not for one second suggesting that mindfulness is better than the best mental health interventions. Medicine and therapy has saved the lives of people that I love. And I'm not suggesting that we can meditate away all the ugliness in the world, nor am I saying that mindfulness will be the only method that we'll be able to train our minds for mental health in the future. It's also true that my experiment won't tell us about the effects of meditation on anyone else in different circumstances. This is what scientists call N equals one. But when we zoom out and we look at what we do know, a recent meta-analysis shows that when delivered by qualified practitioners, like those at OMF, in clinical settings, the strongest evidence is for pain, depression, smoking, and some addictions. Mindfulness, which works as an adjunct to whatever else is available, in my view, looks pretty darn promising. So by now, you're probably getting the drift that I've come to see that mental well-being is an important life skill, like reading is a life skill. It can be taught, trained, practiced and learned, but I will leave it uh, to the pioneering neuroscientist Richie Davidson to sum it up. And as I often say, the brain is changing wittingly or unwittingly, constantly. Our brains are constantly being shaped. And the invitation in all this work is that we can actually take more responsibility for the shaping of our brains in ways which may underlie 
positive qualities of the mind and well-being. Mindfulness is one of many, many different kinds of um, qualities of mind and meditation practices. And so uh, one of the things that we're doing is calling attention to other practices as well. And the way we think about it is these practices can promote well-being. And uh, one of the important implications is that these practices can become a kind of mental exercise that is as commonly practiced as physical exercise is today. We all acknowledge that physical exercise is something good for our health now. Uh, we also all take care of our bodies in other ways. We all brush our teeth several times a day, um, recognizing that that's important. I envision a time in the future where mental exercise will be viewed in the same way. It will become part of a kind of personal mental hygiene. And I think that this is actually an urgent public health need and I think framing it in that way is really important. And it really is around this simple idea that well-being can be learned, that well-being is actually a skill. So as I come towards the end um, and invite questions, um, I'd like to share with you that today is day 1,934 of what was supposed to be a year-long commitment to meditate every day. I've just returned from my fifth silent ret retreat. And I guess really like everyone, I have felt and I still feel the hugeness of this pandemic. And like everyone, my life was turned upside down. But thankfully, in these uncharted times, I have mindfulness as my map and my anchor. And having made it home in time from that film festival in California, um, we were actually able to uh, successfully pivot to an online release. Uh, and we have the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation um, and other organisations to thank for helping us get the word out. Amazingly, through that online release, we ended up reaching more people with the film online than we would have otherwise. So I guess um, I would like to say that I still get stressed out and I still don't have enough time, uh, but I haven't lost a single night's sleep since I began my mindfulness practice. Um, robustly and I guess really to end on this I'd say that daily mindfulness meditation has made me a little bit more discomfortable <laughs> and that I think is what has made all the difference thank you thank you so much Shannon um it's interesting, I, when I first heard you talk about your experiences in the, the year of living mindfully uh, in 2020 and just thought, wow, this is the most amazing, objective, uh, compassionate exploration of, of how we can support ourselves and others. But hearing your journey has just made it all the more, I don't know, powerful, really. And I'm, I'm just observing some of the questions in the in the chat. Um that are all reflecting the fact that this is an incredible, you know, it's a journey, isn't it? It's always a journey. 
Um, and we've got to bring a certain kind of scientific objective approach to what we're doing. We we know perhaps how it affects us and how it supports us, but we need science to back up what we're saying. But but it's really lovely to hear your perspective, which is um, science is kind of getting there. Not maybe, maybe not completely there yet, but definitely getting there. Um, so we've got some amazing questions. Are you okay to just answer a few questions? We've got about 10 minutes, well, seven minutes maybe, um, to uh, to explore these, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. And one question in particular, you talked about your plan. So if you can't do it here, you do it here. If you can't do it here, you do it here. And someone has asked, do you feel different on the days you meditate in the morning, the afternoon, bedtime? Is there a difference? I'm going to have to rain check that question because I need to pay attention to that. I haven't lately, I haven't paid attention to that. Um, I've been practicing now for so long that I'm sort of settling into it as more as a whole life thing rather than noticing deeply day to day. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, overall, I think that it's the conscientiousness, which is the world's most boring word ever. <laughs> but conscientiousness is a um, it, it means commitment and consistency. And so I'm I think that it's the daily consistency, regardless of the time, that's making the overall difference in my life. But yeah, day to day, I mean, I I would imagine that yes, I, I'm probably calmer and um, more able to meet my children during that crazy morning rush (laughs) if I've actually if I haven't just leapt out of bed and leapt straight into you know the chaos Um, so probably yes thank you you for your honesty there that's great (laughs) (laughs) so linked to this is someone else who said um, so Julia asks have you really not missed a single day really but it got a bit close to the wire. How did you cope? <laughs> um, I really have not missed a single day, but there are days, um, Christmas Day last year, where I meditated for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> but it still counts. <laughs> that's allowed, isn't it? I think that's allowed. That's okay. Yeah. Um, great. <laughs> um, here's another one. Did you overcome your insomnia? Yeah, I have not. I have not experienced insomnia um, since about three months into the experiment. And sorry, just to be clear, there there are nights where I have slept terribly, but I have not experienced that ruminating craziness. Um, you know, where the mind is actually the cause of the inability to sleep. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this is a big question. Do you have any thoughts on what changes are needed within society to put mental health and interventions on a par with physical health and, inter- and interventions? Not yet, but stay tuned for my next film. <laughs> another film? Um, <clears throat> yes, I do. Um, the new film is called Raising Superheroes and it's started production and it asks the question, what if mental illness was preventable? And um, I can reveal to this group, who I think have some 
deep understanding of the issue um, that the conclusion of the film is that we don't need to give kids, you know, growth mindset interventions and, you know, positivity exercises. What we need to do is we need to change the world around them so that they don't get sick in the first place. Um, Given that we know about um, how uh, mental illness often begins in childhood and then reoccurs throughout a lifetime, the point of the film is that that's the point to start. Yeah. 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 So stay tuned. It's still a while away. <laughs> but if you'd like to support the release, sign up to my newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you now an impossible question, which is, do you know roughly, because I know someone will ask, do you know roughly when that might be available? Uh, well, production has begun. Um, it's just, there's just, a, a, yeah, there's some holdups, but let's say hopefully in the next 12 months. Yep. Great. We'll hold you to that then. Um, <laughs> So lots of questions who I think I get a sense that people are really interested in your personal practice. So here's another one. Um, Thank you for yeah. that. Thank you for being interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's rather mind blowing that that you've not missed a day, I think is what's coming <laughs> on, the, on the chat here. Um, so uh, is 45 minutes of practice different to 20 minutes of practice? Yes, it is. There is a really good reason that mindfulness teachers encourage, especially beginners, to practice for 40, 45 minutes a day. In my lived experience, now the evidence on this is still coming through. We don't yet know. But any long-term practitioner will tell you that um, the first, well, for me, I can only talk about for me, the first 20 minutes of my practice is generally about letting the thoughts that need to be thought be thought you know there is so much mental activity that occurs in the first 20 minutes for me that it's only really after I tick over that 20 minute mark that I find that I can deepen into the the wearing practice Mm. so I really am a huge proponent of trying to commit to 45 minutes a day especially as a beginner and uh, the silent retreats have become an absolute must for me because you know like my kids said to me recently before I went off on my most recent retreat mom aren't you about due for another silent retreat (laughs) (laughs) it's like there's this build-up of mud in my mind from just so much information that comes at me through the day and through, you know, the week and through the months that it's like the retreat is the time just to let all of that just settle to the bottom of my mental bucket and it leaves clear, a clear mind. Mm. Um, yeah. Thank you. So here's, here's an interesting one. This is from Caroline. Have you imagined the actual physical neural changes to your own brain? If so, does this help strengthen any waning desire to practice on a particular day? No, uh, not for me personally, but I do understand that some people are very big visualisers. And so I would understand if that would help somebody to practice. Yeah. I mean, just just to be clear, the, the neuroscientist... I worked with two neuroscientists and the one who tracked my structural and functional changes in my brain was not 
are not familiar with mindfulness practice. And he was really interested to see if um, any form of mental training could be preventive for things like developing Alzheimer's. Um, He's interested in the ageing brain. And he primed me at the beginning to say he didn't think he would get any changes, any structural changes. He, like so, I, so, so to, to answer that question about visualizing things, I wasn't expecting anything to change, and then when they did change, he was stunned. People need to watch the film if they haven't seen that <laughs> already. It's a, a great moment. I think both of you are quite shocked, aren't you? <laughs> Fantastic. I think I think we're going to have to leave it there. There's a few other questions coming in, yeah. but. Um, as a, I'll just say I can see that there's some people here, you know, wanting to know more details about things like did I do Vipassana retreats and yeah. could I talk more about the insomnia? Um, have a look. I, I write a free blog, so have a look on the blog and search those terms and you'll find some information there. But um, also um, if you've seen the film and which is available for free through you guys and there's a link that you guys have, um, go ahead and watch that but if you want to know really big details like how did I tackle the insomnia and all that sort of stuff I have written a book so check that out and there's a whole chapter on things like that yeah brilliant thank you so much Shannon um it's been such a pleasure to to have you here and really respecting the fact that you're there in the very early hours of the morning with small boys (laughs) running around um but but always such a delight. And the, the clarity of your observations are just really um, amazing, really amazing. And the quality of the questions that are coming up in the chat, I think, are a reflection of that. So thank you so, so much. Everybody, you know, most of you know, we, we do these keynotes um, the first Wednesday of every month. This is our last one of 2022. So 2023, who knows what will happen in 2023, but um, what a wonderful way to end the year with Shannon. So thank you so much, Shannon. Um, As ever, we're doing our daily practice sessions Monday to Friday, 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. UK time. We're going to be doing them through Christmas as well. We're going to be doing some uh, special kind of festival weekend if you like of um 24th 25th december so watch out for that but mainly a huge thank you to you shannon for for everything that you've offered today really fascinating um and we're going to do our usual farewell which is to unmute if you'd like to and say goodbye in your own language in your own way um and thank you shannon very much for, for joining thank us thank you so much right. shannon thank you so much bye